Hello and welcome to another episode of The Gold Podcast. I am back after a week of illness. This is your host, Isabel O'Brien, and I'm with my co-host, Jade Williams, Gold's editorial executive. How are you doing today, Jade? Very well, thank you. Very happy to have you back in the studio after my solo stint last week. I know, Jade wasn't happy to be flying solo, but I thought you did a fantastic job steering the ship. Thank you very much. You were very much missed. But what have we got coming up in today's episode, Isabel? Well, I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with the authors of ZS's latest Medical Affairs Outlook report. On the show today, we have Sarah Jarvis, who is the global lead for the medical consulting practice at ZS, and then Sunil John, who is the principal and co-lead of the global medical affairs practice at the company. Yes, the latest annual report explores key trends and findings from the medical affairs field, including the maturity of Omnichannel, key investment areas and medical education. Indeed, but our discussion did focus on a key theme that relates to the title of this episode, and it was one that jumped out in the report, Customer Expectations of Medical Affairs. So let's get into it. Now, to give you a bit of background about today's guests. First up, we have Sarah Jarvis. She has been at ZS for over 20 years, having actually taken her first job at the company in 1998. Between now and then, though, she has taken a two-year stint at the pharma company Genetech before returning to the business ZS in 2005, and she hasn't looked back since. In her role as the global lead for the medical consulting practice, she helps to get the best out of MSL teams on a daily basis. She also has extensive experience on pre-launch products, holds an MBA from the London Business School and a BA from Princeton. Then we have Sunil John. He has been with ZS and worked in the healthcare space for more than 13 years. And as I said, he co-leads the firm's global medical affairs practice. For the last seven years at ZS, Sunil has focused exclusively on global medical affairs across field medical, medical excellence, medical information, and medical education. He has worked across America, Europe, and Asia Pacific over a range of clients and therapy areas. And he also holds an MBA, but from the Indian Institute of Management in Bangalore. It was a pleasure to talk to Sarah and Sunil in the following interview. And if you're interested in medical affairs, well, you have come to the right place as there are so many interesting insights ahead. Sounds very exciting. Without further ado, let's listen. So hello, Sunil and Sarah. It is a pleasure to have you both on the podcast today, joining from different corners of the world, I should add. So thank you very much for that. How are you both doing? I'm great. Uh, ready, ready to dive in uh, from California. Absolutely. Very excited to be a part of this podcast. Lovely. Well, it is great to have you both on and I'm really looking forward to the discussion today. I've got you both on because you have recently released a report, which is called the ZS Medical Affairs Outlet Report. This is something that you guys do annually and it's around trends and evolving affairs within medical. Now, there is a huge amount in this report, and I hope we're going to cover a significant amount today, but I would recommend readers take a look, and we will link it below. But today, I want to focus on a key theme from the report, and that is expectations of customers in relation to medical affairs organizations. Obviously, these are evolving. They will continue to evolve. But before we get into that, Sunil, if you could start off for me. In the report, you split medical affairs organizations into three levels of sophistication. Can you give our listeners a bit of context as to what these are and where a majority of the companies or individuals from the companies that you studied felt 
their company fell within. Absolutely. So we have been doing this outlook report for quite a while now. And one of the things that we certainly make sure that we understand is the maturity that different medical affairs organizations are in. So across the globe, across many different sizes of pharmaceutical organizations, these organizations are in very varied phases of their maturity. And what we also do via this is to figure out what are the next steps that leadership should take uh, basis where they are currently so that they can visualize where they would like to be in the future. So we see this in three main buckets. Uh, we call them the nascent, evolving and best in class. It's also very important uh, to provide a very quick background on how these buckets are actually designed or defined. We look at three parameters, uh, strategic planning, data-driven decision-making, and coordination amongst the roles, which are like extremely important in any medical affairs organization. And to make it more real for our listeners, I'd like to take an example of strategic planning. So a nascent organization would have limited to no strategic planning. Support would be reactive from medical affairs and the roles wouldn't be very well defined. Whereas if you look at an organization which is like best in class, you know, their strategic planning could be three to five years out, centralized data repositories, impact assessment metrics are in place. And there's a lot of structured and unstructured data analysis that are being used to drive decision making. So that's kind of the spectrum that we see. And to answer your questions, um, you know, we saw that 72% of the organizations are in the evolving phase and an equal split between nascent and best in class, which is very close to our own experience of having worked with many organizations. And yeah, that's a trend that uh, we have seen very similar to in 2022 also. So those are the three buckets and, uh, and three levels that we see medical affairs organizations fall into. Well, it makes sense, I think, for companies to mainly be in that evolving category. And it'll be interesting to see where we're at in a year's time, given some of the insights that you guys picked out throughout the report. So the first thing I want to get to, and Sarah, perhaps if you could help me with this one, is virtual engagement. So the report highlighted that we're seeing more hybrid MSL roles becoming available within pharmaceutical companies. Based on your findings, though, how are customer preferences for virtual versus face-to-face -face evolving? Yeah, absolutely, Isabel. I, what, what I find um, as a, I'm going to call it a silver lining of COVID, um, is that it was really a test case for how can we engage differently? And I think for the, the medical community, um, specifically MSLs, so medical science liaisons, um, and their engagement with KOLs. Um, we've been looking at this and working with you know, many, many companies on how to make sure that those are effective, um, efficient, and, and really meeting the purpose, which is to educate. And so when we framed up this question and we framed up the surveys, you know, Sunil and I make sure that um, the KOLs are definitely people who are engaging with medical all the time. Um, I think one watch out for some reports that you see, sometimes they just, they talk to people who don't actually engage with medical. And so the, the findings you get back are really kind of mixed. Um, but with ours, we make sure um, that, that these folks are regularly engaging multiple companies, MSLs. Um, what we found in this year, which I think is, is confirmation of what a lot of us are seeing in the industry, is that 
the the preferred interaction length, for example, between in-person or virtual, so over Zoom, for example, it's basically the same. It's it's maybe two minutes difference, but you're you're in the the 21 to 23 minute range, which I think is really important to know in context to, for instance, sales reps. Do you know actually the average length of time a sales rep gets with an HCP? I would guess it would be shorter than that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a totally different type of engagement. Um, I would say on the very not conservative side, it's at most two minutes. Um, and so you're talking about 10 times the amount of engagement time. Um, and that's what's interesting is whether it's in person or virtual over Zoom. We're talking 10 times the amount of time. So it's a very, it's typically uh, four times a year. Uh, that's held constant uh, since before COVID. But what's what's interesting, I think, is when you look at, and when we looked into the data, um, there's actually uh, this year about 10% of people who have said, that's it, I am done with Zoom. You have to meet with me in person all four times a year. You know, there I get it. I understand where they're coming from. But 87% of people say, I want virtual and in person. So I want a hybrid mix because that's how things are working in my life. Um, there was a very small percentage, 3%, who said, you know, I never want to see another person again. I just want virtual engagement. Um, we also track that and ask future preferences. And it's, it's about the same, but the percentage of people who want um, in-person only does grow to about 14%. The vast majority, 87 84%, want a hybrid mix of virtual and in-person. And I think the reason that that's really important for companies to think about is, you know, in, in the U.S., we talk about a peanut butter approach because um, we eat peanut butter all the time, uh, which basically means you use the same thing and you spread it over a, pre a piece of bread. So it's everything's consistent for every single person. Um, and I think what our data is showing is don't do that. Field medical leaders don't take that peanut butter approach. You need to figure out what your customers actually want from you um, and tailor it based on that. Mm, really interesting. And I think something that's important for me to mention about this report is that you spoke to pharma professionals and, as you said, they're healthcare professionals. So you're really getting both sides of the coin, which I think is what makes this so valuable. I guess the other thing I should point out in that, though, um, is so we we also we talked to folks in the U.S. We talked to folks in the EU, uh, EU four plus the UK. Um, we also spoke to um, KOLs in Canada. And one interesting trend is when you look at satisfaction and comfort. I would say it's a pretty consistent. EU is saying we are done with virtual, and we want more in person uh, than than Canada or the U.S. So that's another little interesting difference. Another little nugget. If you had to guess why why that is, what would you say? Well, if I were in the EU, I'd want to be out meeting people too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I, I mean, in in not jo joking aside, um, I think in the U.S. there's a lot more geography to cover. But we unfortunately we didn't ask that question to to, to deep dive into that. These were ten minute surveys that we were getting a ton of information from them. So, Well, maybe something to add into next year. Um, Sunil, I'd like to ask you a question now. So another area that the report covered, and this feeds into what we were just saying, Sarah, about having both sides of the coin. 
It's Omnichannel. We know Medical Affairs is investing a huge amount of time and resources in Omnichannel, but there were some interesting insights in the report about how healthcare professionals feel about this. What would you say um, to, to a client, for an example, do healthcare professionals feel that Omnichannel is worth investing in at this time? Absolutely. So taking a step back here, Omnichannel has been a topic uh, that many people have found extremely interesting and worthy to invest in. So we need to understand what those investments are so that the listeners can relate to it. So some of the key investments that we see are happening is, you know, firstly, the centralized data analytics and insights hub for medical affairs organizations. We can think about this like a customer 360 where you're able to understand your customer in a much more deeper way. We also see a lot of investments happening in KOL segmentation and archetyping activities. Many of our listeners would know that historically we look at KOLs in terms of tiers, which are static. But segmentation and archetyping is kind of more personalized and understanding the needs and preferences of uh, your stakeholders so that you can start providing them the information that they need, the scientific information that they need in the right way at the right time in the right format. We also see a lot of work happening in customer engagement planning processes and tools because that's the next logical step, right? Uh, you have segmented your customers. You need to start planning of how you want to engage them. And finally, some of the bigger topics that are kind of coming up are content modularization, which is availability of blocks of content to be shared across channels based on the preferences of the stakeholders. And also systems for virtual channel data capture, because we, we talked about hybrid and how there are many different channels available today. So you need to have systems to capture the data. So these are like the five key buckets of where the investments are happening. As organizations invest, one of the key questions that keep coming up, like you rightly mentioned, is, is it working? We feel, yes, the impact is there to see. Uh, the stakeholders that medical affairs continues to engage is varied and is changing a lot. And customer centricity and personalization is going to be a key trend in the future. And that's going to enable the organizations to become unbiased scientific partners of choice. The one-size-fits-all approach will really not work in the future. So when we, when we talked to the KOLs and we wanted to hear from them, what we found out was that close to 36% of KOLs found omnichannel initiatives to be extremely effective and 56% found it to be moderately effective. So big majority saying either moderately or extremely effective. So this shows that personalization is having an impact and it will continue to have an impact. Now, having said that, we also need to understand what are some of the reasons that were stated for this high effectiveness? So the first one was flexible and convenient engagements because, you know, people are busy, they have a schedule. So reactive inquiries, which are flexible and kind of basis and give me the flexibility to ask the questions when I need to. That's great, right? Uh, personalized and tailored approaches. I get what I want in a format, in a channel, from a source. That's really resonating and also effective communication and collaboration. So these were like some of the key things that came up as reasons for high effectiveness. It's very important to understand that all of this is going to happen if we have the data infrastructure in place. That's an investment that's happening across all the organizations. Many of the organizations are in different phases. Like I talked about, they are either ideating about it or they have completed the ideation. So the numbers are really there in terms of people investing in it. And that's a trend that's here to stay in our mind. Well, 
great to hear that investments are being made in the right places and that Omnichannel is working as you note, Sunil. I think it will be really interesting to see how companies in that ideation phase fare when stepping out of the one-size-fits-all approach and into much deeper personalization. So, Sarah, we can't talk about medical affairs without mentioning medical education. And I found the section on what information healthcare professionals want to know at what stages of the life cycle very fascinating. Would you say you had some key takeaways from this section of the research? Yes, Isabel, absolutely. So one of the ways that Sunil and I set this up is because we get questions all the time uh, across the companies that we work with about, um, you know, when should we be engaging uh, customers? When do they want us to engage? When should we? Um, and, and when we do that, what should we be talking about? And so one of the, the things we've done is we actually asked across when, when would you prefer, and we, we focused on in-person engagement, field medical engagement, whether virtual or in-person, but to have that group engaging you 86% said by launch, of course, that, that makes a lot of sense. But what we're seeing is that uh, there are KOLs who want phase one engagement. There are those who want at phase two, certainly by phase three, I would say the majority. But when you when you look at that information, I think it's important to think about what are the the needs of the market in terms of education. And so we we actually force fit. Uh, so we force the KOLs to just pick one. So for each life cycle phase, what is the one bit of information that they definitely want to have from MSLs? So of course, post-launch, everyone said relevant clinical data. I, I think that's that makes perfect sense. But when we made them force fit, you do see some differences popping out. So for instance, at phase three, clinical trial design information, that that is a key topic and a key need. At phase two, uh, things like latest pipeline developments are popping up. So I, I think when you actually think about the individuals and their needs, it's important to to make sure that your organization is set up to deliver those and be able to pivot. And I, I think a key underpinning of this that we've already talked about here today is making sure that you have the data available to be able to know when to do that and how to do it based on their preferences. Yeah, super interesting. And you're right to point out that this is just a guide and obviously does vary hugely. Uh, so it's very important to check in with your own stakeholders. But I do think it's encouraging to see how much healthcare professionals want to know outside of the relevant clinical data. That's a really fantastic thing to note. Then, both of you, if we can, there were several sections in the report that discussed how HCPs want to collaborate more with pharmaceutical companies, which is fantastic to hear. And it'd be great to know how medical affairs can facilitate this process. So Sunil, can you give some examples of collaborations that HCPs would like to see and maybe tell us what the potential benefits could be for patients? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a very important question. We asked this last year too, and uh, results were very positive. KOLs wanted to collaborate with medical affairs organizations. This year, we took it a step further and figured out what those topics were. So we saw that a big like one third of the mentions were around collaboration on clinical trials and research programs. 19% or 90% of the mentions uh, were around organizing cross-functional meetings and providing engagement avenues. 
So these were like the collaboration topics, your clinical trials, your research programs, engagement avenues, sharing product and disease expertise and so on. But what's very important to remember is why would a KOL want to collaborate with you? So that's another thing that we had in our report this time. More than half, 51% said their prior collaboration experience with a pharmaceutical company was extremely important to them when they considered future collaboration opportunities. The other factors that came out to be very important were product perception and unmet needs, along with interim clinical trial results. So why is this important? It's important because people want to collaborate with you, but there are factors and drivers that you really need to do well on to make sure those collaborations are happening. And the key here is prior collaboration. So it's important to make sure that the experience is great to have continual collaborations with the NKOLs. Talking of patient impact, you know, there are a lot of areas to focus upon patient experience. You know, the medical affairs professionals and leaders are focusing on this. So are the KOLs. Now, if I were to look at the KOLs, 73% said that identifying eligible clinical trials and support programs to help patients with access to therapies was important, extremely important. And similarly, 57% was around assisting in creating educational materials. 43% was around collaboration with patient advocacy groups uh, to provide guidance to patients and caregivers. So it's important to operate at the intersection of what medical affairs professionals think are, is important and where the KOL initiators are happening so that together they can really have an impact on patient centricity and patient experience to better access in the long term. Thank you, Sunil. I like what you said there about finding the intersection between initiatives that medical want to do and the ones that co-AOLs want to see. Sarah, is there anything that you could be more specific about around the initiatives that medical really want to push forward as opposed to the KOLs themselves? One of the cool things we saw in this report, uh, so Sunil and I added a, a lot of questions around um, what we hear from our clients all the time about recognizing they really think their um, primary goal is around improving patient lives. Their primary objectives there where things popped up as extremely important. Um, the number one was focusing on initiatives around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So 55% of the respondents we talked to on the medical affairs side said that that was a, a key objective for them that they're focusing on. Um, they're also looking at ways to partner with patient advocacy groups to use data in more effective ways to understand what patients actually need in terms of their experience, creating patient-friendly materials, education, uh, support programs, a lot of different initiatives in there, which I, I think are um, really vital to the mission of medical affairs organizations to serve the patient. Mm, really interesting. Thank you both for that. I think collaboration really is key and it's fantastic to see how medical affairs could be such a facilitator of that. So both of you, for my last question, uh, we always like to finish on a bit more of a personal reflection um, we've spoken a lot about the report and the insights that you guys uncovered within that, but I'd like to know a little bit about you both now. So Sunil, if you could kick off for me, what is the best piece of advice you have received in your career so far? Absolutely. 
I think uh, when I reflect back uh, on my journey, I think one of the key pieces of advice that has really stuck to me over a period of time and really kind of energizes me and keeps me going is that, you know, is to be ahead of the curve in terms of innovation and most importantly, industry first innovations to continually innovate and bring newer approaches and thinking to the industry. I think that's one of the best pieces of advice I've received that, you know, we as professionals have a very broad view of what's happening in the landscape and we should really use that knowledge and understanding to get better and newer approaches to uh, the professionals out there, to the healthcare professionals, to the patients and so on. So thinking ahead of the industry and most importantly, help pharmaceutical organizations solve for issues that will come up in the future, but in a more proactive, thoughtful, well-defined manner, I personally feel feel will have a very long-lasting impact on the overall patient well-being. And that, I think, has been one of the best pieces of advice I've received to, you know, kind of innovate and make sure that we are bringing the best to the healthcare industry and to the patient at the end. Yeah, really interesting, kind of focusing on the here and now while concurrently looking ahead for innovation in the future. Absolutely. And Sarah, what about you? To speak up. That is the number one piece of advice I wish I had... um, I, I, I got it, um, I would say sort of midpoint in my career. And I was very nervous for those folks who know me now. I think they would find that impossible to believe because I talk all the time. <laughs> I've definitely taken the advice to heart. But but I think for, for folks early in their career, speak up, uh, ask questions. Uh, speaking up doesn't mean that you're taking center stage to share everything you know, I think the best way to speak up is to ask smart questions, listen, grow, be interested, uh, but but don't don't sit on the sidelines thinking cool things. Speak up. I love that. Use your voice. I think that's definitely something we can all relate to at one point or another. Sunil, Sarah, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Both Sarah and Sunil had some great insights to share in that discussion. Isabel, do you have a key takeaway from your conversation with them? I think what was really interesting about that conversation is that we covered a number of areas in which medical affairs is operating. But I think what I found so interesting was hearing about the healthcare professional side, but also the pharma side. I think it's quite rare that you get that direct feedback from healthcare professionals on pharma activities. So I just thought overall, all that insight was really, really valuable. Mm, I definitely agree. Well, and on that note, we have sadly come to the end of the episode. Thank you so much again to Sunil and Sarah for talking to me about ZS's new report and what it means for medical affairs. And thank you to you for listening. Do be sure to rate, comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on next week's episode. That's right. Until then, it is goodbye from us. Bye.